Welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica, and I am so glad that you are here with me today. Before we get started, you guys, I don't know what the sound quality is going to be like today. I want to apologize in advance for whatever reason. It was not letting me record from my little studio out in my garage, but I did not want to leave you guys without an episode this week. So bear with me. I hope it doesn't sound terrible. And here we go. Before we get into our episode, though, I wanted to see if any of you guys had watched the Investigation Discovery series about Natalia Grace and her adoptive family. This case did not happen in Texas, but I definitely think it's worth talking about. I have listened to two different podcasts and read a People uh, magazine article about Natalia Grace and the Barnetts who adopted her. Their names are Michael and Christine Barnett. They already had three sons of their own and had been featured on 60 Minutes, on an episode of 60 Minutes, because their oldest son was considered a genius and was going to college, I can't remember right now, but like when he was 12 or something. So if you're not, if you're unfamiliar with it, they adopted Natalia from an adoption agency in Florida. She was an orphan from the Ukraine, and they believed that she was six years old. Natalia had a rare form of dwarfism, and the family knew that when they went to Florida to meet Natalia. But because this form of dwarfism was very rare, she was smaller than average for a little person. The Barnett's claim that Natalia is psychotic and that she's a sociopath and that she tried to murder them and their three children. But after watching the series on Investigation Discovery and also listening to the two podcasts, I think these people adopted a little girl, got tired of dealing with her, and were trying to figure out a way how to get rid of her. These people pulled out all the stops. They petitioned the court and had her birth certificate changed so that instead of saying she was six years old, it said she was 22 years old. They rented her an apartment, dropped her off at the apartment, left her there, and moved to Canada. Even if she's 22, which that's a huge gap, six years old to 22 years old, even if she really was 22, she can't live independently because of her disability. She was in a regular apartment. It was not tailored to her needs. She couldn't drive a car. What was she supposed to do? So later this summer, Investigation Discovery is doing a series with Natalia Grace giving her side of things. And I'm very interested to see how that goes because I've heard the parents interviewed 
but I have never heard her get to talk about what happened in her words. So I'll be interested to watch that. I think that the mom, Christine, she just sounds like a horrible person. And the dad, Michael, I really just think he's a spineless wimp. And then he went along with everything that she said to do until he figured out that he was about to get in trouble with the law and was going to be charged with child abandonment. So he turned around and ratted his wife out to save himself. I'm sure Natalia probably does have emotional problems. I don't doubt that in the least, but I just question everything. And after watching the interview with the father, the mother was not in any of the episodes. It's obvious that he's a manipulator and a little crazy himself. So anyway, just I want to know what y'all think. Tell me what you think. Today's episode, let's get back to our stuff now, back to Texas. Today's episode is about a family from Conroe, Texas. Conroe is a town near Houston, and the Everett family's lives were ripped apart by a man named Hilton Crawford, who was a trusted friend of their family. Their son, McKay, called him Uncle Hilty. And in fact, Hilton Crawford used that trust to convince McKay to leave the house with him. And McKay never came back home. Paulette and Carl Everett met when Paulette was in college and Carl was still in high school. Carl and a friend of his went to Paulette's house because the friend was dating Paulette's younger sister. And that's how Paulette and Carl met. So the two hit it off. And a few years later, they got married. Paulette was an elementary school teacher. And Carl got into the oil and gas business. And they were soon living a very comfortable life in an upscale neighborhood in Conroe. Paulette and Carl just assumed that they were not able to have children because they had been married for 12 years before Paulette became pregnant with their son, McKay. Paulette's pregnancy was very difficult, and she almost died during childbirth. So the couple knew that McKay was, would be their only child. Paulette is quoted as saying that she was awestruck to have a child of her own, and that they finally had the family that she and Carl had always longed for. Uh, anything I read about the Everett's talked about what a nice family they were, how tight-knit they were, that it was obvious that all three of them really enjoyed spending time together, and how much they cared for one another, how involved they were in the community, and just what overall nice people they were. It was also said in most things that I read that McKay was an old soul, and instead of calling his mom mother or mom or mama or mommy, he referred to her lovingly as woman, which I think is really cute. And he would say things to her like, you're having a bad day. Let me get your purse and put it right here because I know when you're having a day like this, you forget where you put your stuff. So he was a sweet boy, caring and liked to look out for others. When McKay was born, Paulette quit teaching 
to become a stay-at-home mom, and she started selling Amway products on the side. If you are not familiar with Amway, they are a pyramid company, and they sell beauty and health items. At that time, Amway was really popular. A lot of people were selling it. A lot of the Everett's friends were selling it, and people in their neighborhood. On September 12th, 1995, Carl and Paulette went to the local Amway meeting for their area. It was a dinner meeting, and the couple let McKay stay home by himself. He was 12 years old, and he was allowed to stay by himself for short periods of time. The meeting was being held 10 minutes away, and they told him that, he, that they would call in and check on him about every 30 minutes. McKay knew the rule. He knew that he was not allowed to answer the door for anyone while he was home alone. And he had been taught all about stranger danger. The Everett's knew that McKay took this rule seriously and that he abided by their rules because a few months earlier, a neighbor's alarm went off. And when the sheriff's department came to try to get it turned off, McKay wouldn't even answer the door for the sheriff's deputy that was at the door in uniform. He told them he was not allowed to answer the door for people he didn't know. And he answered that deputy's questions through the closed and locked door. So McKay was a responsible child. He followed his parents' rules. They knew they could trust him to stay home and do what he was supposed to do. When the Everett's left, McKay was sitting on the couch, watching TV, eating a bowl of ice cream, and happy as could be for the evening. So Carl had checked on McKay throughout the evening, but at one point he got up and called McKay, but was unable to get a hold of him by phone. So Carl went back out to the table. He told Paulette to stay, finish the meal, finish the meeting, but he was going to go home and check on McKay. Paulette didn't think much about it. Carl told her just to ride home with their neighbor, and she thought that Carl was just tired to go home. It was Friday. It was the end of the work week and she knew he'd really rather be at home hanging out with McKay anyway. Now not long after Carl had left, the neighbor that Paulette was supposed to ride home with received a phone call at the restaurant. He got up. He took the phone call. He came back and he told Paulette that it was time for them to go home also. Paulette still didn't think very much about it. She got up, left the meeting, and when they got in the car, the neighbor told Paulette that Carl was at home, but he couldn't find McKay. As with any parent, Paulette says that she was frozen with fear immediately. And of course you would be. What parent wouldn't be? Where is your child? Why can't I find him? Why is he not at home in our living room where I left him? She was terrified. When Paulette and the neighbor arrived at the house, the police were already there. There was crime scene tape up, and Paulette could see fingerprint dust all around the front door. Carl met Paulette in the yard and told her that when he got home, the door was ajar, and the alarm system was turned off. He walked in, he called for McKay, but he got no answer from him and could not find him anywhere in the house. When Carl walked into the door, the telephone started ringing. 
And I find this very interesting. And maybe I'm just reading way too much into this because I never saw anything mentioned in any of the articles I read on any, I, I listened to a podcast about this and watched two different documentaries and no one else brought this up, but I find it interesting that the meeting was not over. The Amway meeting was not over. It was not scheduled to be over. Carl had just come home because he was worried about their child because he could not reach him by telephone. But as he's walking in the door, the phone starts ringing. It makes me think that someone was watching their house, but I don't know, maybe not. Like I said, maybe I'm just reading way too much into this because it's not mentioned anywhere. Carl said he answered the phone and a woman with a raspy voice told him that they had McKay and they wanted $500,000 in $100 bills. She told him that they would call back the next morning at 8 a.m. to give them directions on how to deliver the money. She said that Paula and Carl must do this if they ever wanted to see McKay alive again. So, because it was a kidnapping, because there was ransom, the FBI was also called in. The next morning, on Wednesday morning, September 13th, the FBI started their investigation. Their first stop was at the office of Rick Metz. Rick Metz was a close family friend of the Everett family. He often would stay with McKay when Carl and Paulette had to be away for the weekend, whether it was business or just, they were just getting away. Rick Metz would come and stay the weekend with McKay. They were very close. Uh, Rick Metz had a key to their house and he knew the alarm code. So, of course, he was number one on the FBI's suspect list. They were waiting for Rick Metz at his office in the conference room. And an employee, his employee said that the FBI is waiting for you and they want to talk to you. Rick Metz walked in the door. There were six FBI agents sitting there in the conference room ready to question him. They immediately asked him if he had anything to do with McKay's disappearance. He said, no, of course not. But they continued and were saying things to him like, oh, come on, just tell us where McKay is. We know you know what's going on. Rick Metz became very upset by this and became very mad and told them in no uncertain terms that he loved McKay, he loved Carl and Paulette, and that he would never do anything to hurt McKay or his parents. And that while they were sitting there questioning him, the real kidnapper was out there somewhere with McKay and they were wasting time. After this outburst, the FBI said, fine, would you be willing to take a polygraph test? And Rick Metz said, yes, of course he would. He took the polygraph and he tested uh, and he passed the test and was cleared by the FBI. So the FBI then went over to the Everett's home and set up to get ready to wait for the 8 a.m. ransom call. The FBI and Paula and Carl Everett waited and waited. 8 a.m. came. No one called. They waited. They waited. They waited. They never received a phone call from the kidnappers. I thought it was interesting that every newspaper report said that the Everett's refused to pay the ransom. But like I said, I listened to a podcast about this case and watched two documentaries where Paulette Everett herself was interviewed in all of them. And she never once said anything about refusing to pay the ransom. 
So I don't know where that came from, but I do know sometimes mistakes are made and then that just becomes what's reported. So it was probably just a mistake, but the Everett's never even got the chance to refuse to pay. They were never given that option because no one ever called back. In the interviews that I watched with or listened to with Paulette Everett, though, she said when they did not receive that phone call, it sent her anxiety and Carl's anxiety into overdrive because what get is a kidnapping with no money? And then they were, of course, on high alert. After no call came, the Everett's met with an FBI profiler and he told the family to make a list of everyone that McKay knew that he would feel comfortable with and that he would be willing to open the door for. Because as we know, people who are familiar with crime, most crimes, unfortunately, that are committed against children are committed by someone that those children are close to and that they know very well. The Everett's said that it felt like a nightmare. They couldn't believe that someone they knew and that McKay knew would be willing to hurt him or to kidnap him or do something to cause them harm. But they started their list. A day or two after McKay went missing, a neighbor told the police that on the night that McKay was taken, he was putting his trash out and a car was backing out of the Everett's driveway so fast that they almost ran him over. When the neighbor described the car, it sounded just like a car owned by a family friend named Hilton Crawford. And like I said earlier, McKay called him Uncle Hilty. The families were very close. In fact, earlier that week before McKay had gone missing, Hilton Crawford had been at their house. He brought McKay a gift, a football that he had signed from Uncle Hilty. So this was someone they knew very well. Hilton Crawford was a former police officer from Beaumont, Texas. He worked at a private security firm in Conroe. His wife was a well-liked and well-respected elementary school teacher. And they had two little boys that were the same age as McKay. In fact, they were really good friends. The boys all played on the same little league team with McKay, and Hilton was their coach. So this is someone that they knew and spent lots of time with. McKay was very comfortable with him. And in fact, people all around their community talked about what a nice guy Hilton was, how much he loved kids, how involved he was in the community, and just what an all-around nice guy he was. Hilton had approached the Everett's about going into business with him. He wanted to open an Italian food restaurant, but the Everett's declined because they said they really just did not know enough about the restaurant business and were not comfortable putting up that kind of money for something they really didn't know anything about. Now, Paulette told Carl not to release any financial information to Hilton Crawford because she did not want to share their private information with anyone, not just the Crawfords, but just with anyone. But unknown to her, Carl had already shared that information with Hilton. And 
Paulette believes that this was where Hilton's plan started to hatch. The Italian restaurant was not successful, and no one in the close circle of friends knew that Hilton Crawford was in huge financial debt, not even his wife and children. Hilton Crawford liked to gamble, and he had extensive gambling debts that he owed a lot of money to a lot of shady people to. He was living well beyond his means, and he owed more than $300,000 because of his failed business, and he had recently declared bankruptcy. The FBI believed that Hilton Crawford had started making plans to abduct McKay after he saw the Everett's financials as a way of getting himself out of debt. So after the neighbor reported seeing Hilton Crawford's car speeding out of their neighborhood on the same night that McKay was abducted, Paulette also remembered that Hilton had called her at around 5 o'clock that evening before the meeting had started to see if they were going to go. Hilton said he wasn't going, and at the time, Paulette really didn't think much about it. She told him, yes, they were going to go, but of course this meant that McKay would be home alone. And now Hilton had that information also. So this made Hilton Crawford law enforcement's prime suspect in his disappearance. Now I'm going to tell y'all, Hilton Crawford was not a smart guy, especially for someone who had been in law enforcement. Three days after McKay went missing, on September 15th, the FBI went to the dry cleaners that Hilton Crawford used this man had dropped a shirt off that had blood splatter on it. Really, guy? I mean, why would you take that to the dry cleaners? Why not just, I don't know, throw it in the trash? Burn it? Something? Is the shirt that important to you? Why would you take it to the dry cleaners? Because you know the cleaners were immediately like, what the heck happened to this shirt? After they found the shirt... They also searched Hilton Crawford's car because, remember, the neighbor saw the car speeding out of the neighborhood. And the liner in the trunk had been removed, but there were still signs of blood in the trunk. There was evidence in that trunk that McKay had been inside it and that he had tried to escape. He had been removing gaskets from inside the trunk, and it showed that probably if he'd had just a little bit longer, he probably could have escaped, which... This whole, this whole case is heartbreaking. But then on top of it, to know that this child was so close to possibly getting away, I don't know, it just breaks my heart. It breaks my heart to even think about it, any of it. The police were able to start putting a timeline together of what Crawford had been up to since the night of McKay's abduction. They found out that less than 12 hours after McKay was taken from his home, Crawford checked into a motel room in Beaumont, Texas at 4.30 a.m. Beaumont's only about 100 miles from Conroe, and it's not very far from Louisiana where they later recover McKay's body. And here's the thing. Why is this family man out on the road at a motel in Beaumont? What's up with that? So he looked suspicious all over the place. He didn't do anything. And he didn't even try to cover his tracks. Like I said, for someone in law enforcement, he did not do a good job at all. And, you know, 
maybe he did want to get caught. I don't know. But they believe that Crawford lied to McKay, and that's how he got him out of the house. They think that Hilton Crawford told McKay that his parents had been hurt and that he was going to take McKay to his parents and that that was what made McKay open that door and turn that alarm off. So police arrested Hilton Crawford, and he did admit to kidnapping McKay. He said that he had a woman named Irene Flores make the phone call demanding the ransom money. Irene worked for Crawford at the security company, and they arrested Irene Flores as well. She told police that Crawford had tricked her into making the call and that she never would have ever made that phone call if she thought someone was going to be hurt. Now, Crawford denied killing McKay. He said that he gave McKay over to a man named R.L. Remington. This was supposedly someone that he owed money to that was involved in his gambling debts. And he also said he never thought McKay was truly going to be hurt. They would get this money. Crawford's debts would be paid. McKay would go back to his family and all would be well. I mean, I just, I don't even know what to think about all this. The FBI did not believe a word of what Hilton Crawford was saying. They believe that R.L. Remington was some made-up person to try to take the blame off of Hilton Crawford for murdering McKay Everett because there was never any evidence that anyone else was involved in McKay's murder, and they never found any leads pointing to who this R.L. Remington person might be. At this point, the FBI had run out of leads to find McKay. Hilton Crawford was not talking he wasn't saying anything else, so the FBI asked Paulette Everett to go to Hilton Crawford's wife and tell her, go to the jail, take their two sons, put them in front of Hilton Crawford, and tell her we are not leave- tell him we are not leaving that jail until you draw us a map and tell us where McKay is. So Paulette went to the wife, and she did. She agreed to go to the jail. She went. And Hilton Crawford drew a map that sent them straight to where they could find McKay. Now, unfortunately, it was not the outcome that the Everett family was hoping for. Because on September 18, 1995, McKay's remains were found in the tall grass on the side of the road, 250 miles away from his home in Louisiana in the Atchafalaya Swamp. The coroner in Iberia Parish determined that McKay had been bludgeoned with a large flashlight. He had a huge hole in his skull. So this poor boy was beaten. Then it was believed he was dragged to the grass and then shot twice with a forty-five caliber pistol and then left on the side of the road. The coroner said that he had been involved in over 2,500 cases, but anytime it was a child, it broke his heart, and he wished he had a different job. And I don't blame him. I can't imagine. On July 24th, 1996, 
Hilton Crawford was found guilty of capital murder and sentenced to death. Now, I want to tell y'all what Hilton Crawford's defense attorney said to the jury. She told them that Hilton Crawford wasn't a bad guy. He'd only done one bad thing in his life, and that was being involved in the abduction of McKay Everett. But other than that, he was a good person. Go easy on him. Are you kidding me? The only bad, I'm sorry, but even if that's the only bad thing he did, he was responsible for a child, a child's death. I mean, come on. I don't, I just don't know. Um, the jury took less than an hour to come up with their verdict. They found him guilty and sentenced him to death. Irene Flores was sentenced to 25 years in prison for kidnapping. In 2003, Hilton Crawford was executed in Huntsville, Texas by lethal injection. He never admitted to killing McKay Everett. And even though he asked for forgiveness from the Everett's, he never owned up to what he did. Paulette Everett stood on the other side of a window and watched Hilton Crawford take his last breath. She said it was a relief for her to know that the ordeal was finally over. Now, the grief from losing their only child took its toll on the Everett's marriage, and they did divorce. Paulette's sister said she believed that McKay was the glue that held their family together, and that after that, their grief just was too much for them to bear. In 2011, Carl Everett died of a heart attack. But Paulette Everett Norman, she, Norman, she did remarry, started a foundation in McKay's name called the Samuel McKay Everett Foundation. And it is a program geared to helping educate children about how to stay safe and what to do if they find themselves in a dangerous situation. Paulette developed the curriculum herself and shares it with schools. She donates it to the schools so that they have it and that they can hopefully, she can hopefully help other children never be in the situation that McKay was. In fact, it's become her life's work to help other children avoid dangerous situations. And she said it's really helped her and given her a purpose and helped her overcome her grief from losing her son. So let me know what you think. I just, I don't know. I, to, I feel like today's episode, there is no happy true crime episode. But I feel like this was a heavy one about a young boy who sounds like they were such a wonderful family and what a great kid. And unfortunately, an evil person took him away way too early. So tell me what you think. Thank you for listening today. Please remember to tell a friend about this podcast. Subscribe and leave a five-star review. And like I said, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can uh, email me at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod. Or you can also find me on Facebook now at Texas True Crime Podcast. So I will see you guys next week. Bye.